that's coming, Ann. So if Angelo wakes up, you might hear that crying baby. <laughs> All right, guys, let's try this again. You got uh, you ready, Ann? Yes. Ty, you ready? Let's party. All right. Time out, Tyler. Who are we taking a time out with today? Well, howdy doody, and thank you, Kevin. Uh, today, y'all, we have Ann Constantino, CEO at Horizon Corp. And Ann, thank you so much for being on our show. We're tickled to death. And I'm going to uh, go ahead and ask you, Ann, if Kevin and I were making a trip over from Rochester to Buffalo to meet you today for lunch, where are you taking us out to eat? Uh, um, I'm going to take you to Lloyd's Tacos. Ooh, um, all right. I think Why I Lloyd's? I would find you a food truck. Um, well, first of all, because of COVID, yeah. and uh, we don't need to go inside and eat, right? <laughs> and a lot of restaurants are closed for lunch because I do love restaurants. Um, so I would take you to kind of the best food truck, kind of who, in my mind, started the Buffalo craze, and we would we would do Lloyd's. All right, Lloyd's it is. Lloyd's it is. All right. Since we're carpooling over to Lloyd's, what music are we going to catch catch on your radio? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, this is where I'm going to show my age. Um, I I love all pop music. I love classic vinyl. I love classic rewind on XM. Uh, I love 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, all the pop channels. Yeah. Well, so what and song if I was are we alone, rocking out to? What? What song are we listening to, Ann? Oh, my gosh. A what is it? <laughs> you know, I am kind of not a music person, like in terms of sophisticated. So we're, we're rocking to anything I know the words to. All right. I know the words to it. I'm singing and um, just getting into it. So any of that like real heady stuff that is, you know, probably the super important music. I'm probably, I don't get it. Yeah. Don't have to, man. We're just glad that we're now, just glad you're here with us this, uh, this afternoon, yeah, just, whatever time zone we're in. And uh, we're, just, we're just excited to hear your, you know, experience, strength, and hope, Anne. And uh, will you just take us back to 1994? What a year that was when the Arkansas Razorbacks won the national championship, when Inconstantino <laughs> started this uh, really passionate and uh, it, it hit home to my heart what you do over there and with Horizon Corp. So can yeah. you just, uh, tell us what kind of path you took back in the 94s uh, that, that started all this? I'm actually going to go back a little farther. Woo, all right. Um, back it up. <laughs> uh, prior to 1994. So, um, my background is I was a substance use counselor. I went to school for um, originally for art, completely unrelated, couldn't get a job. I went to graduate school for counseling and educational psychology, um, started working in the field of addiction and loved it, loved the work, loved the people. We were talking a little bit about um, before we started that I'm one of those people like I want to ask you all the like I want to ask you questions, and um, when you're a counselor, you get to ask all those questions. So um, or an interviewer. <laughs> so um, and what I loved about working in the field of addiction is the the change that was possible and and working with people. Um, so I did that for several years. Came to Horizon in the late '80s, 
and ended up kind of really loving the business development side of the business and ended up being chief operating officer. And sadly, in 1994, our CEO, who was a young, we were all young back then, our CEO, who was a young man, um, died suddenly of a heart attack. And um, there we were. Uh, we were building Horizon Village, which is our residential treatment center. Um, and, you know, long story short, it seemed like I would be the best person to kind of lead the company and um, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know everything I didn't know. And as I mentioned, um, being he was beloved and brilliant. So um, I was immediately underestimated and, and nobody was having great thoughts about me. So um, I really had an opportunity to build an amazing team of people that were brilliant and passionate and awesome. And we worked together to, you know, bring the company into the next level. So uh, we went awesome. from, I think we were probably $4 million budget back then to 65 million today. Wow. And uh, we went from zero residential treatment beds to almost 200. And um, we serve about 14,000 people a year. Wow. And, so. and, and based off of uh, recent, recent events, we, we predict that uh, potentially um, that is only going to increase, right, uh, with, with what we're experiencing during this uh, pandemic with uh, talks of PTSD and things like that. Um, I'm always amazed by leaderships um, when the, when their alignment of their values, their vision, and their mission, right, and, and and unlocking their purpose. And it sounds like since you've been there now, coming up on 28 years, mm -hmm. um, that this has been unlocked for you way back um, when when you were kind of selecting um, what you wanted to do, um, and you actually had the experience on the front lines and, and dealing with people. Why did you choose this field? Why, why did Anne decide that this is something that you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Such a good question. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't terribly thoughtful. Um, I knew I really liked people. And, um, you know, I come from humble beginnings. I didn't have a lot of opportunities and I didn't frankly think about work in terms of making money back then. I thought about work in terms of how do I want to spend my time? Mm -hmm. And um, if I could help others through something like counseling, it seemed to be magical. I am curious. I have uh, hope and positive regard for human beings. So um yeah, you know, it's corny, but if, if you make your little piece of the world a little bit better and can help somebody, well, what's better than that, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that's probably why, you're, uh, why your team loves you so much and why you've been in the role for, for this long in, in the executive leadership role. It sounded like you had some big shoes to fill, and, and obviously it sounded like a, a, a male and now a female leading an organization Take us back to 1994 again as to what you did in those starting days to really, I guess, build your internal brand and, and kind of set the new direction and the new tone. Um, oh, so many things that some came naturally. One was uh, learning. Like I knew that I, 
I knew enough to know that I didn't, there was a lot I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I was going to build a team of people that, that, and you talk about love. Mm-hmm. Some of those people I, I, had, I already loved, right? And I brought them to be with me on my team because love and trust and shared commitment um, are, are almost more important than training and skills, right? Yeah. We can figure stuff out. Here, here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, we're all, you know, I, I was talking about many of us are pretty unconventional for the roles we ended up in. And, you know, I'm certainly, I think I'm unconventional. Um, you would not have expected me if you knew me growing up that, that this is what I would do. I would never have expected it or wanted it. Um, and I think that helps when it's not driven by money or ego or prestige, right? And it's really just about a job work, um, being successful, being good at, at what you're doing. So I think, you know, early on, it, in, in many ways, it was a downward focus. Um, what are we doing? And we have to do it right. And we have to build all of the resources to make sure that what we're doing, that was the kind of job one, right? Mm-hmm. Before we could be anything else, we needed to make sure that we were doing, doing the best that we could. Mm-hmm. And then um, continuous improvement on that because of the potential. And that requires ongoing learning and connecting them with others and seeing a bigger picture. And it honestly was developmental. It, it, it's just like you grow up, you talked about having children, when you raise children, you know, you're focused on the basics. And then as um, they grow, as your company grows, you start, fo- you're focused on um, more, uh, probably less tangible, mm-hmm. but just as important or more important issues, because things like, um, you know, big things like making sure that we're able to show our employees every day how much they mean to us. Wow. And um, it's refreshing. You know, and advocating, you know, once I've been around for a long time, well, that's a privilege. Mm -hmm. So it, I feel like it's my job and responsibility. And I know this industry Mm -hmm. and I understand it. Well, I get to advocate now and have a voice to, and I believe that advocacy can change uh, can change laws, can change rules, can change resources. It's just how many times you're, you're willing to repeat yourself. And people who know me know that I'm willing to repeat myself a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> and what stuck out to me is you use the word love. I know I always throw folks off because I'm a big personality. I'm, I'm me. And they just kind of ask me what my my go-to sauce is. And I'm like, love, guys. And they're like, yeah. love, you know, we're from the 80s and 90s. We don't talk about love, you know? And, and that's how I was raised. You know, my dad was a Texas high school football coach. Told me he loved me at like age 34. And I'm 36, for God's sakes. And so when you say that, Anne, why do you think love is now more on the forefront, you know, than it has been when yeah. we were, when Kevin and I, I know when I was growing up, you know, the dad didn't say that often. And then I learned the dad's dad absolutely didn't say it, you know, especially if you're a farm boy. Can you kind of dive into that? Why you think we're finally getting there to not be afraid of saying the word love? Well, it's not just saying it. It's don't be afraid to feel it. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So um, love for me was a natural strategy. Um, It wasn't, I didn't have a lot of other strategies. (laughs) (laughs) I needed to love the work, love the mission and love the people that I was going to see every day who are going to, were going to be with me and work with me. And that love wasn't just, you know, for my immediate team, but my, you know, early on, I kept getting my heart broken because I loved, I was loving and investing in everybody. And I still feel that way. So, um, you know, somebody said, well, you shouldn't take it personally when people leave. I absolutely take it personally. Um, I get it. And I want people to have the best for them, but sure. I take it personally because I wasn't able to create that for them. Yeah. Wow. That's a big statement there. Yeah. And it's a different view on leadership and it's taken a more proactive role within, within the leadership. But I loved your point that it all started with love for you, because I think that the best leadership is when they truly are leading from a place from grace and gratitude and, and servitude, if, if that's even a word, but I think it, it absolutely, it's a, it is perfect. Well, good. And then okay, I'm adding that one to the collection here. Of words so, yeah. but it's you, you almost, and, and lack of a better term that's coming to my head right now is almost reek of love, right? And it exhumes and it, it's your priority. How is this driven the way that I guess you communicate this to the board, right? Is because mm-hmm. boards always are looking at numbers in some cases, and it's, yeah. it's a very challenging space to be in. But how have you found it to find that balance between work and, and love and people and making sure that they feel provided for and protected, but also taking care of the, the people that you're looking to serve in the community? How do you find that balance? Well, so love and care go together. Love you that. Can't, you can't love and then not diligently care for your organization or the people, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that for me being, I realized early on, I could never be anything other than just what I am. Authentic and. That that (laughs) authenticness, that um, inability to pretend I was something else then allowed the real me to shine through. Wow. And the re- and by the way, I'm not like you, um, it, Tyler. I'm quiet. I'm kind of quiet. Um, and it's not, you know, like I'm a little intimidated doing something like this, but I, I come into it saying, I'm just going to have to be real. And then I don't have to be afraid of it. <clears throat> and, and I think that for my whole career, that's, how I've approached it. You know, if, if I think about everything I don't know, or I can't do, or I'm not, Mm -hmm. um, and if I show up with that, well, how's that helpful? (laughs) If I show up with what I am, it is what it is. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people found themselves during the pandemic because they had time to do so. And they had time to finally self-reflect and and like, I, like we were talking about earlier, what are you seeing um, based on the community population? Are you seeing an uptick in mental health? And, and how do we, I guess, drop the, the, the stigma? Um, because there is this, un, uh, yeah. there's this thing that's not talked about really in, in, in corporate America or in business because it's a, it's a, they don't want to know about it, right? They know it's there, but they just don't want to talk about it. How do we break that? And how do we get back to celebrating mental health awareness and celebrating that it's just as if somebody had a, a limp or one, 
anything else like that, it's, 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 it's okay. How do we break that? Um, and then you mentioned advocacy, but what are you doing and how do, what can Tyler and I, and people, how can we, how can we get better as a, as a community when it comes to mental health? Right. So I think that people have spent historically, we've spent too much time focused on mental illness, which is a hard thing to understand. But when you talk about mental health or mental well-being, and the good thing that did happen with COVID is we all understand what that means now. Mm-hmm. Because many, many, many people, many families experienced a moment where they didn't feel that sense of well-being mm-hmm. and, and settledness that you really need uh, to, to be able to enjoy your life, to function the way that you want to function, to be at your healthiest self and happiest self. So I think that there is more understanding for mental health and mental well-being. And I think we need to continue to change the words. Okay. The other thing I think that um, COVID helped with is the availability of information. So we've done a ton of guest speakers to schools, to businesses, to community groups about uh, mental well-being and stress management. So I think that, that that has been awesome. And telehealth, being able to connect via Zoom, trust me, as torturous as it is, um, is really, it's such an easy way to access help. Mm-hmm. Um, so help has never been more available in that way. But sadly, we're seeing, of course, um, more impact at all levels of the continuum. Hmm. We know that overdoses from um, prescription drugs, opiates, and synthetic opiates are at an all-time high. So we're uh, all-time high. Wow. So unfortunately, um, and we've been dealing with this problem as a crisis for probably 15 years, and a couple of years ago, there was a lot of press about, oh my God, it's better, it's getting better, deaths have decreased. Well, death does not define good. Mm-hmm. Um, if people, <laughs> as many people or more were living with serious substance abuse, um, just because they weren't dying doesn't mean that we had made the progress that we need to make, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, that's very serious, very serious mental illness compounded by the isolation isolation is the enemy of addiction and mental illness. There's nothing worse that could happen than being isolated. Um, So we, I mean, we're going to have several years of the impact of a pandemic lockdown, um, which is why, and you, and you see and feel that ramping up again, you know, I work with a lot of people. I can see it, feel it, touch it. And I have a big family and just the thought that we're, we keep talking about it and it's still a crisis and, um, you know, and then it's divisive, right? Yeah. The pandemic and whether I'm going to wear a mask or whether I'm going to get vaccinated and how that impacts the rest of the world. And it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot for people. Yeah. And of course, those with young children who... Um, you know, they're very concerned about their young, of course they, they would be. Who wouldn't be concerned about your young children no. that can't get vaccinated yet? No. And then just the risk to them. 
Well, they so, don't have really have the choice either. Yeah. So it's a lot, right? It's a lot. It's a lot for families. It's a lot for employers who are dealing with the stress of, okay, so we made it through the initial part and there was some federal money, but we're looking at a long-term uh, workforce issue that is going to go on and on. And, you know, good for workers who are taking this opportunity to define, you know, to define what they need and live their their life the way that they want to. But for employers, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, striking that balance. Oh, there's now, a lot right now. You know, there's no better way to help out than out. Um, can you kind of dive into that and kind of what tools do y'all prep those 14,000 clients you have a year right. with, with that kind of mentality? So help comes from a lot of places. And um, probably the most long-lasting, impactful, uh, consistently useful uh, tool in long-term recovery is to have people who've been there and done that. And that's what community... Um, help is about what 12 step programs, sometimes church, sometimes whatever that is, sometimes family. So it's a little different for everybody, but certainly the 12 step uh, world has been the biggest part of that. But help also comes from evidence based clinical interventions that help people to um, stabilize and to wreck it, you know, learn new skills sometimes. To, to deal with some of the underlying issues. Um, so I'm not in recovery. And early on in my career, I would get challenged, you know, when I was working in direct service and I, and I was young too. And I would get challenged with, you know, what do you know? You've never been there. Okay. And it's, you know, what I always want to know is tell me what I don't know. Where do you think I haven't been? <laughs> um, what fear is unique to somebody who suffered from substance abuse that most human beings have not experienced and can't empathize with? When I look at people that way, um, I, I'm open. You now we talk about uh, here a lot, cultural humility, right? I'm a white woman, what do I know what it's like to grow up black? Tell me, <laughs> tell me, I wanna know. Explain that to me. I can talk about circumstances as a woman coming up and what that was like when I did it. Um, there's a lot I can relate to. I, you know, so, you know, I think we all have to approach our work, whether it's clinical work or whether it's leadership or and like, tell me your experience. And I, I want, I'm going to try to understand who you are and where you come from, and I probably can. You do love it, ask. You do love asking the questions, Anne. Those yeah. are the right ones, I, I reckon. Golly. So, um, Anne, you talked about a couple of things. You talked about fear. That's one of the things that Tyler and I talk about is like conquering our fear in order to unlock mm -hmm. and finding who we truly were. Mm -hmm. Can you go back to that moment in time? Because you talked about um, finding who Anne was and, and, and not being apologetic for who you were and admitting mm -hmm. that you don't know everything, but coming from a place from love and understanding and empathy, allowing yourself to be in somebody else's shoes. 
how much mm-hmm. um, more of an effective leader do you feel that that, that type of psyche um, has enabled this long-term success that you've had, not only as a company, um, but also individual success? Um, do you want to get into that a little bit as when you found yourself and, and how much better and effective a leader that has allowed you to become? I wish it was more profound um, because it's really just the easiest way to go. When, you know, when faced with challenges and knowing that you very likely could fail, mm-hmm. um, you know, I talked about other people not, not overestimating me, which is great, but I also, I didn't overestimate myself in the sense that um, I thought I knew everything, mm-hmm. but I knew I could do my best and that um, there's, I, I really get inspired by other people. So early on in my career, I joined a, a group of CEOs. It was called something else then, and it's called something else now. Um, and I was in a, I was the only not-for-profit. I was the only woman when we started. We were all young though, and we were all CEOs. And um, some of us came up through family businesses. Some of um, some people were just entrepreneurs. Some of them were like inventors. Wow. And I saw these people who were just regular people, hmm. like that were so amazing and inspirational and doing all this amazing stuff. But I kept thinking, if if they if this guy can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if that guy can do it, because they were just regular people, flawed, mm-hmm. um, some of them with amazing education, some of them with no education. Um, circumstances of life had led them to where they were, and they were, we all were um, committed to, to succeeding, right? Not, we weren't committed to not making mistakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were committed to succeeding ultimately. Um, or die trying, right? Um, so, you know, early on, I just, that kind of gave me permission to just be who I was. And um, they were leading amazing efforts and organizations and I could do that too. And I learned, I honestly, I learned everything I could. And I didn't learn, I thought for, for a while, should I go back to school, and, you know, go to MBA school, whatever. And I just decided to uh, learn the way I was going to learn best. The important lessons that you learn over and over again, remind you, like teach it, talk it, incorporate it, make it be part of who you are. And, you know, everything from Jack Welch. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is kind of back to that, that, that mental health. We saw a change where... Um, I'm going to use a, a bad word, but white America started feeling um, the the pressures of, of addiction, right? It started with the prescription pills mm-hmm. that they were finding in mom and dad's cabinet. And all of a sudden, then it became snowballed into a bigger, 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 bigger issue. And then we mm-hmm. had heroin. And, but it was really for the first time, it was reaching the suburbs. Um, and it was yeah. no longer just an inner city problem. What have you seen, seeing that you've been on the front lines for the last 28 years now, what are you seeing and, 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 and is this the reason why people are putting this more of a focus on this or how do, how do we continue, again, this evolution of mental health awareness and addiction? Remember, I was on the front, front lines in 1983. So wow. <laughs> it yeah. was the front, wow. front lines. Um, you know, 
the opioid crisis, which it, yes, it was white, but it was also young. Yeah. Okay. And the problem, the crisis, the, all of the noise around it was that young people that you would not have thought of as being at risk were dying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was shocking. Um, but I got to tell you, it was, it was so shocking to us to start to see those deaths, but it took a while for like the public to catch up. We're wow. like, Hold on, this is something terrible is happening here. But when you think about addiction, alcohol addiction still causes more deaths than opioid addiction or, um, you know, mixed drug use addiction. So it's still one of the most deadly diseases. The problem is, or the difference is, I should say, um, alcohol addiction in its regular course is going to be slow. It's a slow downward cycle. Um, and it very much affects white America. So think about it, right? And the people that you know that are maybe using, misusing, abusing alcohol, their stories about their families, whatever, it is prevalent and rampant in every community, including white America. But there wasn't um, the crisis of our children dying. Um, so even the cocaine, because I, I was I was working then, you know, the cocaine of the 80s and um, it, people weren't dying. So what happened, it was the only time that I've seen since I've been in the field where we were having these sudden and unpredictable deaths where the very first notice that a family member had that their family member was even in trouble was that they were dead yeah. or they were overdosed in the bedroom with a needle hanging out of their arm. And it was shocking. So, um, you know, unfortunately, and yeah, and then there was, you know, some of the backlash, the white, black, nobody cared when it was our people. It's, you know, we're a, we're a community, right? Any, anytime anybody's kids are dying, you care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it matters. So unfortunately, because drugs are big, big business, right? So the prescription drugs that were very available, which started this whole thing probably 15 years ago, and then we, you know, uh, clamped down on prescription drugs, but what did we say was going to happen? the illegal drug trade was going to pick up where that left off. And sadly, when you're using a pill, you know how many milligrams it is. And you know, it's legit. When you're out there on the streets buying drugs, you have no idea. it's a free for all. It's the wild west. Yeah. And now, um, you know, we see an increase in every community, communities of color, inner city, mm -hmm. suburban community, every community is seeing an increase in the use of these very deadly drugs. Mm -hmm. That's so. profound. Talking about, um, and one of the questions that I had about, obviously, this talk about addiction, right? And, and we are trying to get down to the root cause of addiction. Mm -hmm. Are you of the belief of allowing like similar Europe, I know European countries are trying it, Venezuela is trying it to really like allow them safe spaces to get better, to get the help. 
like, what is your stance on them? What do you think? Do you think that's an effective way to kind of tackle the challenges, but just providing a safe space and ensuring their safety and then working at the root cause? What are your, what is your stance on hundred percent? I, wow. I believe a hundred percent, absolutely save people's lives first, meet <laughs> them where they're at, develop trust. Um, you know, if you can't, you can save suffering. Why, why shouldn't we, if we can, you know, I've heard all of the bias against it. It's enabling. You just help people to continue using. Well, you know, I don't, I, I know the power of addiction and I don't think that what we do or don't do has a lot of impact on the power of addiction, except aligning with, helping, caring for, loving the people mm -hmm. and, and reducing suffering. Wow. So um, yeah, I'm 100% about that. And I'm, a, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a little out of my lane. I mean, there's, I guess there's, um, you know, criminal justice implications mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I don't know, but from a community health perspective, mm -hmm. if you've been in any big city recently, you've seen people uh, using heroin on the street corners. Yeah. And so don't talk to me about public health. Okay. Or I don't want those people near my kid. People are near your kid yeah. and they're in your house and they're in your family and let's, you know, at least drugs could be tested yeah. there before putting it into somebody's arm where it's, they're going to immediately die. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask that, that question. My God, <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, but Ann mentioned developing trust. And I just can't get over that. Y'all have over 14,000 people a year come through your organization, Ann. So like, how do you develop trust within your employees to then take care of 14K folks a year? I don't know if people know, but that is an incredible number. Yeah. So developing trust within your so, employees. Yeah. Our um, vision statement so, you know, some people have really inspirational vision statements. Um, ours is a little more realistic. <laughs> we want to be, we want to be best in class to work and receive care. So best in class, right. To the extent of our ability, we're not Google. Um, and best in our class and in our industry to work is, is first and to receive care. If I'm going to ask people to care for others, then we have to care for them. Wow. And every, everything we can do, and we talk about this, we have committees, it's an ongoing focus of our work. How can we improve conditions for our staff? You know, here, here's the thing. Some of the conditions are beyond our immediate control. So there's not enough money being mm -hmm. directed. Mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. So money's huge. Yeah. Um, but I can advocate for money. I can advocate for money all day long and, uh, and at the highest levels, right. And then not shut up to my earlier point and repeat myself until, um, everybody's saying the same thing. So, but other than that, um, whether it's training, supervision, support, wellness tools, um, days off, an ice cream truck, 
yeah. whatever we can do to make their life better. But, you know, it is hard work. It is the toughest work that, you know, they talk about the heroes in ICU 100%, right? Warriors. But I'm going to say that the people on the front lines of mental health issues and substance use are warriors. They oh, deal with life and death every day. And, you know, so I think one way you create trust is to recognize the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to try to say that it's something other than what it is through transparency. Um, when, you know, when COVID started, our very first commitment had to be to our employees, um, communicating, making sure they were safe, taking every precaution for them. Um, and, you know, it was reiterated over and over. If you're not safe, if your family's not safe, if you're not okay, we're not going to be able to do any of our work. So let, let's, let's take care of all of that. And it's so important when you focus on the employee's well-being. And I think that's what a lot of employers are experiencing right now, that some employees felt um, like disposed of, right? Uh, they don't feel too safe and, and they're still trying to look to rebuild. And I love that you're focused on how transparent that you can be, because that's that's the easiest way to start developing and rebuilding trust. And we had Bob Whipple on a few weeks ago. The uh, trust wizard is what we jokingly call him. <laughs> and he just kind of got into how important that is to, to really build a, a strong, company culture. Um, yeah. Like you were touching on, Anne, culture is constantly changing and ever evolving. You, ne um, you never get there. Exactly. You never get there. And you know, um, telling the truth means telling the truth that people don't want to hear too. Yeah. And it, and um, it sounds like you're able to do that because you found yourself and you're comfortable with that. Now people probably expect that from you, right? They expect yeah. Anne to be her authentic self. One of the things I wanted to talk about too is... Um, a fun question, right? What um, okay. a lot of people see the CEO, but it sounds like you're you're going right to the front lines. Um, sometimes we see our CEOs and we see this, them in the proverbial uh, ivory tower, right? And it's like, oh, there's Ann, but I don't feel like that too. I feel like you're out there on yeah. the and really having conversations with everybody. Um, what is Ann's personal mission statement? You talked about what the mission oh, yeah. statement is for Horizon, but what is your own personal mission statement? We just did. Uh, you know, it's funny. We just revisited that um, with uh, intention statements, not mission. Love like, that. Intention. <laughs> intention. Like it's your personal why, why, why. And I'm going to say I'm at a different point in my career um, now. And my why is a lot. My intention is really about making sure that I I've done everything I can to prepare other people mm -hmm. to um, continue the work and to be, you know, to run strong program, to the influence on public policy. So my why right now is more about probably um, where I am in my career. And mm -hmm. I, I have great people here. And just making sure that that every resource that can be delivered is delivered. And well, Tyler and I want to come work for you. We'll we'll run through a brick wall I, for you. I'm sure I can, sure can use you, Tyler. Guys you, got a lot of energy you out and there. Me, come over here. All right, man. I'm hell. I'm on my way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, there's there's honestly there's room for 
if you have a good heart and you're a good human being, um, tell me what your skills are. And I'm pretty sure we can find a place to fit you in. Um, <laughs> we need help. God it knows sounds like you're all about aligning people with their strengths because I think oh. that you're unlocking their true potential as well. Absolutely. Um, what is one thing, Anne, uh, that your employees might not know about you? Being there for 28 years, there's probably not a lot of dark, mm-hmm. deep and dark secrets about Anne Constantino, no. but what is one thing your employees might not know I'm about kind you? kind of an open book. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say what might they not know about me because I've been around for so long. Um, <laughs> You know, they might not know every individual mistake I made as a kid, um, but who wants to continue to talk about that anyways? Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I could say that, you know, I I bought a Harley when I turned 40. Whoa! And, um, yeah, I did. I did. Um, this is like my go-to story that people don't know. So, <laughs> because... Because what happened was, you know, I was all big and brave and my husband and I, we got Harleys and we went to motorcycle school. And if you've ever been to motorcycle school, they tell you for like three days intensively how you can get killed on a motorcycle. Oh. Yeah. And I believed them. (laughs) So So then you're shaking on the back of this Harley. (laughs) I wouldn't ride it. I sold it. I wouldn't ride it. Yeah. I got my license. I made it through school. They delivered my motorcycle. Um, I looked at my husband and I'm like, nope. (laughs) And he's like, well, will you ride with me? I'm like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) um, will you let the kids? Uh, Nope. <laughs> nope, nope. Two two brand new Harleys got sold. We made oh one. my gosh. Well, you're like me. You probably see the drivers around Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse, yeah. and you're like, uh-uh. <laughs> well, I you know what? And I'm like, what am I thinking? I've got everything in the world to live. I love my life. I love life. I have no desire. I don't need to go fast. I'll go fast <laughs> in a car. <laughs> a well-equipped car. Yeah. <laughs> in exactly. the in the lane. Oh, you know. <laughs> Well, so yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, I don't know what people don't know about me. I don't think that's there's a good a story, though. I like the Harley Davidson yeah. story. Tyler, yeah, like, if I ever had a, a motorcycle, I'd put around my neighborhood, too. You know, oh, yeah. be to five. Yeah. <laughs> then I just parked it right back in my driveway. It would be my intentions. You know, I'm done. Yeah, we went we went twice to a parking lot. Um, <laughs> and like I I wouldn't get out of first second gear. I mean, I had to get out of first, but. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> I got to ask, did you buy all the, the letter, like the, the special shoes, the leather coat? Um, were, you, were you starting your own game with your husband or? Well, I like the clothes. I mean, I am a girl. So I liked, I liked some of the clothes. I'm like, I do want a jacket and um, they had some cool boots, but uh, I stopped short of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, one of the things that uh, I always like to ask leaders too is um, because you're talking about passing the torch, I think a little bit internally, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about now this 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 time because and you really mm-hmm. want to, to continue the mission and continue to watch yeah. its growth. Um, when you think about what Anne, what would you want to be, what does Anne want to be remembered for um, when, when, when mm-hmm. you are gone? What, what is the one memory or legacy that you want to leave behind? You know, so personally or professionally, right? Oh, I want to hear <laughs> because, both of those. Well, if you're talking about love. We can get deep, man. <laughs> you know what? It, so it's kind of, I was going to say it's kind of the same because 
we're all going to pass on in one way or another. And as you get older, you realize you've only got so much time here. And the best thing you can do, so what's everlasting life, if you look at it personally, and it is, it is love. It's love and giving and, um, you know, uh, allowing these people to become the best people that they can be. And so, you know, I'm blessed to have three amazing grown children and I have four grandchildren awesome. and I'm going to love them up. And so that'll be my legacy there. Right. And if they say, uh, mom and Nana, they love, like, she loved us like crazy and she was quirky and she did these things. Great, great, great. You know, I hope there's some funny stories and that they remember me with love. Yeah. Um, because if what they then go forward with in their life is that, then they're going to be good people and they're going to have a good life. Um, same is true for work. So um, I can, you know, I can be remembered for, um, some of the developmental work that I've done in terms of building services or the advocacy. But at the end of the day, I hope it's about the impact I had on people wow. um, individually, um, as for patients, for families. I hope it would be about um, that personal connection and impact. Wow. Wow. So, and succession planning, you know, it, for a while, it sounded like, oh my God, that sounds like a daunting word. But I think when you, when you put it in a different perspective, it's just part of life. It's the process, right? Making, just making sure that, that the people that you're, that you love are the best that they can be and are the best prepared. I can tell very, uh, that you're very much in this category where you're all about framing the question in your own head, right? And you talked about words. You talked about the words of how, how we talk about addiction or mental health or mental illness. You're very selective in the words that you choose, which really sets your intention, which drives your attention to other things that you're doing within your own life. And, and that's amazing. That's very, 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 very powerful. Um, talking about, uh, and Tyler, I know I'm doing a lot of talking right now, but I have to ask this question too. So we're talking Very about diversity, there. equity, and inclusion today. Mm -hmm. um, D, E, and I, um, where we talk about organizations trying to put the D first and then or, or we do mm -hmm. the E first or the I, what happens? Mm. What have you found in leadership? Because it sounds like you're all about listening. It's, you don't have to be the biggest mouth in the room. You're really learning mm -hmm. more when you're shutting up and letting others listen and you're mm -hmm. learning from their experiences you're probably going through your similar evolution as an organization as well, mm -hmm. but you're probably already have beating three fourths of the organizations out there um, today. Mm -hmm. What have you found to be most successful in enabling your DE&I strategy there at Horizon? Um, it has to be empathy and inclusion. Um, you know, we're never, you're never there again. It's one of those things, DEIB, do yeah. we do you accomplish it? Is it accomplished with um, a, a ratio? Is this a numbers game? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I think when um, for me, DEIB is one of those things um, that I'm very humble about and feel like we, we need to do better. Mm -hmm. And how can that how can we do better? Mm -hmm. And there's not an I try not to look at it as an easy problem because I don't want it to be an easy solution, wow. right? I think it's wow. a big problem. Yeah, wow. 
So, um, you know, I, here's what I've learned about big problems because I've had big problems <laughs> and you can only solve them one step at a time. <laughs> and um, if you are too quick to try to want the easy answer, mm -hmm. you don't get a quality solution. Love this. So um, I can't see the end. I, I don't know what the big answer is, but I know what some of the actions are and the steps that we need to take. Uh, more inroads into the community, more relationships with young people that are um, coming up in communities of color to encourage them to work in industries like mine. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of thing, hopefully, you know, if it reaches some people and they and they think you know maybe I should do that kind of work because my life could be good um so you know again for me it I can't I can't play the numbers game yeah because yeah. which number are we going to talk about yeah certainly racial diversity um does not exist in my workplace the way that I want it to mm -hmm. or that I need it to mm -hmm. Um, gender diversity doesn't That's exist. where I was going with next. I, yeah. I know you're on the front lines. You won one of the most influential people up in Buffalo, women yeah. in Buffalo, excuse me. And yeah. I wanted to say, because women, um, there's a lot, right? You mentioned the three children that you have and, and your husband, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot to balance. There's a lot of balance to be had and found. A lot. Yeah. You're talking to the females in our audience that maybe want to sit where you're sitting and unlock their passion mm -hmm. and purpose. What, are, what do you usually tell women um, to get to where you are today? What are some of your pillars to success, Anne? Um, well, a lot of that we talked about, but early on, just the management of my life, I had to be um, a, a little clear about what I could and couldn't do. So um, early, very early on in my career, when I was working hard on the company and on my young family, I wasn't going to business dinners. I wasn't participating in task forces. I wasn't, I couldn't do any of that stuff. Um, I, I would pick and choose and I knew where my boundaries were. And if I wasn't going to be able to um, be there for my children, that, you know, Doesn't nothing was, nothing would be worth it because that was always going to be in my children, my husband, my friends, my family, right. I needed all of that in my life so that I could have this. Wow. Um, but you know, my organization right now, we're 85% women. Wow. <laughs> Which is crazy. That is crazy. Um, it's crazy. You know, and we have a lot of women in senior management. When I took over, it was all men. Wow. Except for me, I was a chief operator. Except for me, it was all men. Um, and for the many years, you know, when I was in industry groups of CEOs, it's and it still is mm -hmm. a lot of men. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so I, I look at gender diversity. I look at um, cultural diversity and your experience. You know, my experience as a young women, young woman in an Italian, very working class family is different than somebody else's experience. Um, so, you know, for that, and I'm going to say ageism. Yeah. 
Oh, because uh, as I get older, I recognize that, that sometimes there's not a lot of tolerance for older people, mm -hmm. but we need their wisdom. We need their um, steadiness. We need their comfort with their own life so that they can contribute in a different way. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think we, I think Horizon could do work in all those areas. Powerful, powerful. <laughs> Well, we usually close on the, uh, I, I, again, Tyler and I, I think want to come here for you and, 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 and have a leader that has this type of mindset, because I think that you're, con you're, you're constantly evolving yourself and learning. Um, but we have to end on one interview question, one stereotypical interview question. We okay. received your application to come work for Tyler and I here at Time Out Leader. So thank okay. you for sending that over, Ann. But Tyler, what is your interview question for, for Ann Constantino? And Constantino, thank you for showing up to the interview. Um, and I'm not real. I, I say this on most of our interviews um, that I'm not too um, interested at what you do for a living, really. I'm more interested in how happy you are. And can you just tell me what era of your life you were the most happiest? I'm going to say I'm at my happiest personally right now, except for COVID which is making me unhappy, but I'm, I'm at the happiest point in my life. Um, and do, would you say that every year? If we asked you the same question, I, I would, I would say that hundred percent every year. I can tell because it doesn't um, seem like you're focused on the past at all. It's always mm -hmm. about how, how you can move forward. Yeah, no, and I, you, I have everything. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm very happy. You are an amazing guest. You're an amazing leader and obviously one of the most powerful women in upstate New York. And we, we need more leadership like you. So I know I am extremely grateful for, for you accepting our offer. We're hire you here at a uh, time out with leaders. Of course we would hire you. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for all that you're doing, not only as a leader, but also in our communities and raising awareness and that advocacy. And if there's ever anything that Tyler and I can be doing or should be doing, we're all ears. Um, but thank you so much you guys, for being on this show. Okay, first of all, I have to tell you that I normally wouldn't do this. Wow. Um, well, I wouldn't, I normally wouldn't do it with like people I don't know and I'm not connected with, but you you sold me. I mean, you were very engaging. So yay for you. What a, a skill, right? All those people on LinkedIn would love to know what your trick is to be so engaging and not obnoxious about it. Um, and you really um, quickly showed what your what your mission was and what you were trying to do. And I appreciate the opportunity and your kindness and your kind words. I really, uh, it's been a blast. I had fun. Um, thank you. Thank you for those big words. And, and, and Tyler and I, we approach life about having fun and from a place from love. And that's why yeah. maybe, maybe my message would resonate a little bit because yeah. I, we don't have any hidden agenda. It's a, I think that's manipulation. That's what you said. You and I'm so, like, I don't think he does. <laughs> yeah. No, so. like, do you, you want again. money? Yeah. Money, like, no. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you have a wonderful day. And uh, we uh, appreciate it again so much for being on our show. It was fun. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Hey, Talk man. to you Thank soon. You.